We, the jury, unanimously find that the aggravating factor... I'm stunned. I'm devastated. There are 17 victims that did not receive justice today. I'm disgusted with our legal system. The verdict and the backlash. Not now the death penalty, then when? When? How, how, could you, how could you not give him the death penalty? Because I do think it was a miscarriage of justice. The Parkland killer lives. The jury draws scrutiny. The Florida law um, disappointed them because that's the process we had to follow. These are different challenging times. The congressman is a candidate. The challengers running to unseat the incumbents. One Democrat. Well, I can't say it enough. We want to do right. One Republican. President Trump, you said I should run, and I will run. Promise made, promise kept. Part sell, part play. Miami-Dade schools want voters to do what the state does not. We want to make sure that we're able to maintain our ability to recruit and retain our teachers and our police officers. The big news of the week and the newsmakers, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the sound and the fury over, by all accounts, a surprise verdict for South Florida's most notorious mass shooter. Life without the possibility of parole for the troubled young man who planned and carried out mass murder at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The families were furious, lashing out at the jurors and the justice system, saying they have been denied their justice. Several jurors described tension and perceived threats in the jury room. Gail Levine spent her career prosecuting murderers and has been providing legal insight and analysis into the sentencing proceedings from the start. And right now she is with us this morning for a closer look at the recommendation that shocked so many. Gail, good morning. So good to have you. Welcome, Thank Gail. You. We are glad that you are here. Well, as you heard and you saw, uh, the jurors, the families of the victims, furious, lashing out, saying they had been denied justice. You have been through these trials for many years. What was your reaction? My reaction is the law is set up to fail. It's to fail the victims. It's to make sure that very, very, very few people, if none, go to, go to death row. You know, that, that's an interesting take because, as you know, I mean, I've sat in the courtroom when you were a prosecutor so many years, um, watched the most heinous cases go to the jury, and yet in a criminal case, it has to be a unanimous jury verdict. Now comes sentencing uh, since 2017, I believe. The Florida law is it must be a unanimous recommendation. Is, un is unanimity appropriate in this case, do you think? I think it's inappropriate. Most of my cases were tried under the old law, which allowed for a majority vote, a 9-3, an 8-4, and then it tossed it over to the judge who understood the legal ramifications. It's an elected official that we trust to make a decision, not a juror that doesn't understand the process, that is there for whatever period of time it is to just hear the case. They've never been to death row. They've never been to a, a sentencing hearing. They've never been to the jail 
to the prison. They know nothing. Yeah, you and, know, well, you know, I, let me just let me just challenge that narrative for just a minute, because the jurors sat there a very long time. In every case, the jury gets instructions. In this case, those instructions were 93 pages long, read to them. So one would have to assume that the jury is diligently trying to understand very seriously what their responsibility is. And they were told that there are aggravating and mitigating circumstances uh, and, and, and components to this. And when you listen to their verdict, they, at least one, and we hear maybe three, uh, thought that the mitigating factors, mostly mental health, uh, were not outweighed by aggravating factors. Well, I think what those instructions really set up is a person to vote their conscience and not the law. Because it's illogical to say that the aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating factors, which they all answered yes on that. And then someone or maybe others voted their conscience mercy. They gave mercy. They didn't just weigh the aggravating factors. They didn't just weigh the mitigating factors. And they didn't think about how this affects him by going to general population. He's, he's not going to a mental institution. He's going to general population. Yeah. And that's where he's going to live for the rest of his life. Yeah. He's not going to be in a psychiatric facility. He's being treated like every single other person. Yeah. So if the aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating factors, the, the verdict or the recommendation should have been, by law, if you just weighed them and not put in mercy, then it should have been death. But the law, because it's set up to have that one-man veto or that three-person veto, allowed the jury, not legal experts, to make a decision about what would happen to him. And they did not hear anything about what's going to happen to him after this verdict. Yeah. Gail, the uh, chief public uh, defender for Nicholas Cruz said in her closing arguments, quote, in a civilized society, do we kill brain damaged, mentally broken people? I hope not. I just I, I hope not either. But he wasn't, uh, in my opinion, brain damaged. Yeah, Being but he's an, an unwell person. Personality I mean, disorder he's, is not he's, brain damaged. No, well, he, he was not diagnosed as being mentally ill. He wasn't bipolar. He wasn't schizophrenic. But clearly, uh, the jurors, at least three of them, one in particularly, thought you know, the fact that his mother had drunk, had taken drugs when she was pregnant with him, and all the other things that had happened in his you know, horrific life were enough to spare him death. I, I got to be honest with you. I, I've tried lots of people that have had truly horrific lives. This kid, this man, had a mother that loved him, a school system that supported him, that gave him every opportunity. I hate to say this, but some people are born evil. It has nothing to do with the fact that his mother drank during her pregnancy. Otherwise, those of us that were born in the 50s and the 60s, we'd all be mass murderers. That's a cop-out. He had choices. He's an antisocial personality disorder. They did not understand that that is not a mental illness. It's a personality disorder, and it is different. It is not mentally ill. Most people in prison, are antisocial personality disorders yes. and cannot conform. You know, when uh, Gail, we have a, a couple of minutes left, 
I just want to not let this segment go by uh, before acknowledging the families who are living with lifelong profound loss and, mm -hmm. and most of whom it appears were just devastated by what happened this week. Um, you know, the governor this week, uh, a lot of politicians spoke out and, and condemned and criticized what happened, but the governor in particular had said something about how long this has taken, four years. Um, I, I seem to remember just one case pops up in, in my head, a murder case, a Barahona murder case, Miami Day, that was your case before you retire retired. Uh, 2011, I want to say, we are a decade without a trial in that case. C can you speak to the length of time these families were waiting, both in Parkland and in general, with the laws as they are? I, I speak to this, Glenna, most respectfully. There's 305 men on Florida's death row. Governor DeSantis has signed just one in 2009 death warrant. If he's in such a hurry, He's got 305 guys lined up. It starts with him and it starts with his staff moving forward on death warrants. Then judges will move faster and victims will not be laying there waiting day and night for a trial that goes on and on. It starts at the top. It starts with the governor. And I'm telling you, he assigned one death warrant that was actually started by Rick Scott. So he's complaining that it's taking a long time, but he has 305 men lined up and three women. Let me also say, if the families do want a do-over, the federal government has the ability to try this case because a firearm was used in interstate commerce. And the federal government, just like they did in Colorado, uh, during the Aurora, uh, Colorado theater shooting. The federal government can give them the do-over if they want. I don't know whether the families can stand it. And I don't know whether, of course, the Biden administration with Merrick Garland will do that. He's taking a long time to decide whether Buffalo, the mass shooting in Buffalo, has the death penalty. It's because our leaders don't make decisions. And our leaders, including our judges, need to make decisions. Decisions are important, not laying cases in wait. Yeah. Gail Levine, we, we appreciate your informed, experienced analysis of what happened in this trial, and we thank you very much. And maybe consider running for office in the next couple of cycles, maybe. That would be good. <laughs> Thanks, Gail. <laughs> Thanks, Gail. Thank you. All right, up next, a veteran congressman makes his case for re-election. We will speak with Representative Mario Diaz-Balart after the break. We've got less than a month to Election Day, but voting already is underway by mail-in ballot. And then by November 8th, every voter in South Florida is going to be able to choose their member of Congress. One of those districts stretches from Miami-Dade all the way across the Everglades to Naples. It's now District 26 after redistricting. It got a new number where voters have re-elected their rep for the last 20 years. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart is that rep. He is now South Florida's most senior member of Congress at such a young age and is now <laughs> running for re-election again. Congressman, great to have you aboard. We're so glad that you are here, Congressman. So well, let's start with... Hi, so let's start with news of the week because uh, the January 6th commission this week voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump after laying out uh, a lot of evidence and video and testimony about what happened on January 6th. If you were advising the former president, would you tell him to testify? 
You know, I think that I said it before that 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 commission, that committee is 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 frankly bogus. It was created in a party line way. Um, the Republicans weren't allowed to even name people to that commission. Those that were named were not allowed to be there by Nancy Pelosi. Um, uh, so Atlanta, here's what I would recommend anybody to do, uh, and particularly the leadership in D.C. Focus on the things that are important to the American people. Inflation is out of control. Gasoline prices continue to rise. The world is as dangerous as it's ever been. I mean, you know, President Biden called it, said that we're closer to uh, Armageddon, nuclear Armageddon than we have been since the uh, uh, missile crisis, right? Those are the issues that the American people care about. Uh, and yet, in Washington, they're focusing on other things okay, trying wait, to change the subject. Congressman, uh, before we get into the talking points, um, I, I really want to give you another chance to, to answer that. Despite, to your point, how the commission was created, they have presented thousands of interviews, they have presented video, they have evidence. Uh, President Trump, former President Trump's own top advisors among them. So, so in the here and now, there is this subpoena, yay or nay, what would you advise? I wouldn't do it because it's a totally illegitimate committee. I'm sorry, say that again. I didn't quite. That I wouldn't do it because it's a totally illegitimate, false, um, uh, you know, circus committee. I, I think giving it any relevance or giving it any, um, uh, you know, uh, doing anything that would potentially make it look a little bit more credible is not good for uh, the process, for democracy, and for the American people. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just point out, and I'm not an advocate here. But at their first meeting of this January 6th committee, when it was uh, televised, more than 20 million Americans watched it. Millions more have watched the subsequent uh, six meetings of this uh, committee. Uh, and you were dismissing it as just simply unimportant, irrelevant, uh, unfair? Michael, remember that they hired producers who do movies and big time shows in order to do that, they wanted to this make is a, a show. Good TV. Yeah, they wanted. Yeah, to yeah. Make this is this is great TV, but it's actually an absolutely farce. Uh, it is a Roman circus. It is uh, a show meant to distract, change the subject from the issues. Look, don't say my word for it. I mean, you guys know what's going on. Ask the American people what is relevant, and what is relevant in their lives is what is happening. That is hurting them because of the policies of this administration, of one-party rule, yeah. of the radical left controlling everything. They're trying to change the subject. They literally hired, as you all know, producers, big-time yeah, TV From ABC News. To yeah, create I, a good TV show. It yeah. is a, it's a sitcom, unfortunately, is what it is. No. Congressman, I, I, I would simply point out that what concerns the American people, and I'm sure we'll talk in a minute more about inflation and the economy, uh, the state of the world, but the fact is that a huge majority of Americans are concerned and angry and, and, and anxious about an attempt to overthrow a legitimate election, which is what this commission is looking into. Michael, except for the fact that if they were really serious about that issue, they would also be looking at um, when in 2016, even members of that commission, uh, said that the election was illegitimate. If they were really serious, they would be actually looking at um, when, for example, folks went in and took over the state capitol uh, in other states, trying to stop the legislatures from moving forward. Again, this is a one-sided, absolutely one-sided false show on an issue that, uh, well, the issue is important, but they're not treating it 
as a real issue. This is a farce. Uh, it's a partisan witch hunt. Not that the issue isn't important, but if it's if they really were serious about it, they would be. By the way, they wouldn't put on the commission those that said that the 2016 election was fake, was stolen. Among those, by the way, that was saying that was the current vice president of the United States. And yet, for some reason, that doesn't seem to be important. It's only a one-sided effort. Um, Congressman, always appreciate your perspective on everything. Let's get it on your uh, district lines for the district that you represent now are changed, not so much, but a little bit, and now include a lot of the Miami Eastern neighborhoods, Wynwood and Alapata, things that you haven't represented in your 20 years in Congress. So issues, you know, watching the lines is really interesting because now there are neighborhoods that have very different priorities from neighborhoods that may be in the same district. So, so broaden the campaign a little bit and, and talk about how to represent a, a much more diverse district with many different priorities from each other. Yeah, I'm used to doing that, you know, and my record and what I've always run on is my record of getting things done not getting involved in these partisan battles up in dc but getting things done look even the new york times not exactly uh, a uh, you know conservative beacon right in a hit piece that they that did last week uh, hitting the republicans they had to admit that i have brought billions and billions of dollars to florida and to south florida for things that are important by the way i would i would add that you all have always reported on the issues that I've gotten done for this community. Always, that and is, always will. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you've all been fair in that sense. Well, good. Uh, uh, Congressman, um, one of your, I think, things uh, in the plus column for me, and I think a lot of people, has been your very strong support for Everglades restoration. Over the years, you have worked with Democrats. You and Elsie Hastings were close on this issue. You've yes. worked with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And I think that, you know, that is to your credit. At the same time, you have taken some money, campaign money, from Big Sugar. How do you reconcile that? Well, again, you mentioned the things that I've been doing. Uh, I, I've had a record of getting things done. I've taken campaign contributions from farmers. I've taken campaign contributions from environmental groups. And then I make the decision that I think is right for the people of Florida. And as you mentioned, my record speaks for itself. Look, Michael, there are very few people, not only in Florida, members of Congress, but in the entire country, that have, rec have a record that is better than mine for getting things done. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't pay attention as to what groups out there may say. I look at what is the right thing to do. I get things done. And what I do is I work on bipartisan or nonpartisan solutions to real problems. And on that record, on getting things done for the people of Florida, particularly South Florida, nobody in Congress, no one has a better record of getting things done in a real concrete way. Again, as I mentioned before, and you did as well, uh, you've all been very, very fair in covering some of those things that I've gotten done for Florida. One last point on that. I have more issues, more funding, more successes in the current uh, appropriation bill on T-HUD than even the Democratic chairman who chairs that committee. Yeah. Why? Because I work in a way, in an effective way, and I succeed. Yeah. And yeah. I plan, if people want me to, to continue to work on solutions, yeah. not on rhetoric, which is all you hear mostly coming from yeah, Washington, we, we will We will stipulate that, you know, on the Appropriations Subcommittee, where you are the ranking member, you're very effective. Thanks very much, Mario Diaz-Balart. Always good to speak with you. Ditto.
Good to see you both. <laughs> All right, coming up, the challenger in another South Florida uh, congressional race. Joe Budd is the Republican candidate in a predominantly Democratic Broward district, and we're going to talk to him next. The newly drawn Congressional District 23, Fort Lauderdale to Boca, is an open seat where Republican candidate Joe Budd is challenging Democrat Jared Moskowitz, you know, the former head of the state emergency management. Congressman Ted Deutsch of Boca Raton represented that district for the last dozen years but decided to retire from Congress. Joe Budd is a businessman, an activist in the local and state Republican Party. He is the Republican candidate in that district, and he joins us now from Boca Raton by Zoom. Mr. Budd, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Glenn and Michael. Thank you for having me. We're, we're glad you're here. Uh, Mr. Budd, after that candidate forum at the Tower Club in Fort Lauderdale not long ago, Jared Moskowitz said he would not debate you because you are an election denier and believe in the QAnon theorist conspiracy. So let me give you a chance to answer. Are you? Absolutely not. Uh, in that article you're referring to from the Sun Sentinel, we were both interviewed after that uh, forum. And I deny what he said. It's absolutely not true. Uh, the election was not stolen. I don't support any type of conspiracy theories. Joe Budd, you are a Republican in what was before redistricting a very, very blue district. And there would be a lot of political observers that write off any Republican candidate. Now it's 23. It is a much more moderate, still Democrat-leaning, but not a hugely blue territory now. Uh, and yet, as we were speaking with the Congressman Diaz-Balart, kind of a, a mixed bag. So as a conservative Republican candidate, speak to your district on how you might effectively represent everybody. Well, first of all, I was the first individual to run against Ted Deutsch in a general election. At that time, the Cook Political Report, which is the handicapper of all districts throughout the country, said that the Democrats had a 26 percent advantage in that race. I outperformed that number in 2010. Now the Cook Political Report is only calling the advantage for Democrats 5 percent, and I've outperformed in every election I've ever been, been in. I'll outperform that number as well, and I feel we're going to win this race. Drew, let me ask you the question that we asked uh, uh, Mario Diaz-Balart a minute ago. Uh, the January 6th uh, committee, as you know, as the world knows, uh, said it's going to issue a subpoena for Donald Trump to testify. Uh, should Mr. Trump go to Washington and testify before that committee? Well, he can make that decision on his own. My opponent also had to be subpoenaed to go in front of depositions for being part of a company that has been accused multiple times of overbilling on hurricane cleanup. And my opponent has made millions of dollars from damage from hurricanes. Just look at his net worth and his financial filings. They went from under 300,000 in 2011 to over 4 million in 2021. When he sees a hurricane, he sees dollar signs, not the human tragedy that's part of these hurricanes. We saw winds and waves come up in video and destroy houses right off of their foundations. And all he wants to talk about is how much it's going to cost right, to let rebuild me, let me, let, let, Joe, let me jump in here and simply say, obviously, Mr. Moskowitz isn't here to defend his financial or business dealings. So let's move on beyond that, if you would. 
Well, I mean, I invited him to a debate. He certainly had, would have the opportunity to defend that, but he refuses to debate because there's so many skeletons in his closet. So let's, I want to, uh, our venue is a venue where our viewers get to see and hear and listen to candidates and where they stand and what they would do. I know as a, you know, reading your literature as a conservative Republican, um, I, I wanted to let people hear from you about, um, I'm going to guess you, if in Congress, would have also, like many of your colleagues in the party, voted against spending bills, the infrastructure bill, uh, COVID relief act and uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so, well, so far, would you have voted no on that, on those? Well, I mean, look at the results, all right? The results are under the Biden administration and the Democrats, we have runaway inflation. We have record high gas prices, record high food costs, record high housing costs, record high medical costs. Anything that they've done has only made the problem worse. It's not inflation reduction, inflation increasing. Uh, they're just not doing it right. They need business people that need to go to Congress again in order to deal with these issues from a business perspective, not from let's throw out the kitchen sink and try to put dollars in for every constituent that we're trying to get the vote for us. Okay, good. So that um, so the part two to that question is you, you are a businessman, so we've listened to a lot of criticism uh, both for President Biden and those acts and the policies. So much criticism. Um, rarely do we hear very concrete solutions though so as a business person what would be some of those things that you might suggest to curb uh, inflation and and to bring down gas prices well the start of this is the obvious one the, the probably the worst case scenario that could have been done that Joe Biden did on the second day of his administration was to stop oil and gas drilling on federal lands and the Keystone pipe X, XL pipeline and then drilling in Anwar now, those things were right away out of the gates. Now, look at the problems that resulted in that. 6,000 products are made from the oil industry, transportation, uh, goods and services going from one place to another. But here, even the greatest side effect of what's going on by sh putting your foot on the neck of our fossil fuel industry is we are funding the war in Ukraine. We are funding people like Putin in order to have the money to go and exercise a war in Ukraine. Wait, now wait, wait, they want wait, to take Joe, the how, I'm sorry, you said we are funding Putin? How, how in the world is the United States funding Putin? By the Biden administration energy policy. See, oil and gas could be $30 a barrel instead of $90 a barrel. That $90 a barrel is profit, Putin is profiting from that in order to fund his war on Ukraine. That's a side effect of bad policy. That is the major implication of the inflation that's going on in the United States right now. We need to go back to drilling our oil. We could be energy, not just energy independent, but we should be energy dominance. They want to take the sanctions off of Venezuela right now in order to trade, buy oil from them. What's next, Iraq? We're going to start buying oil from Iraq next? So we have would our own. Would you, you then mean? would you then advocate the uh, the 9000 leases that currently exist for companies to drill would you advocate the companies start exploring those 9000 leases well, first of all, if I'm sitting here with a straw drinking a cup of water, eventually that cup of water goes empty. So you could say there's 9,000 leases out there, but they've been sucking that oil out of that ground for who knows how long. Again, day two, executive order, shut all that down. 
They actually reopened in June. And what they did is they only opened up 20% of what was available before, and they put a 50% increase on the royalty that they charged to get it out of federal, uh, federal leased lands. So again, they're, just, they're just trying to attack the fossil fuel industry, and it's causing all kinds of problems, a worldwide recession, just because of their energy policy. Joe Bud, we are out of time. We are very glad that you could join us, hear your point of view, and we'll see what happens November 8th. God bless you guys. Thank you for having me on today. You're Thank you so welcome. much. Still to come, another congressional candidate from South Florida. We're going to speak with Democrat Robert Asensio after the break. The incumbent congressman in Florida's newly drawn 28th congressional district, that is South Day down to Key West, is of course Republican Carlos Jimenez, first elected two years ago. In fact, the congressman was with us last week talking about the Keys cleaning out and clearing up from Hurricane Ian. His opponent, Democrat Robert Asensio, was in the Keys as well. Asensio is a former state rep and a Miami-Dade school police captain, former, and he is right there with us today. Robert, great to see you. Robert, we're glad you're with us. How are you? Good morning. So always great to be here with you guys, and thank you for this great opportunity to speak to South people in South Florida. All right, if we can, let me begin with a question. Your principal criticism of Carlos Jimenez is that on January 6, 2021, he voted not to certify the electors and the election results in the presidential races in Pennsylvania and Arizona. He said that they had, you know, not followed the constitutional process in the way that they had uh, accumulated, tallied the votes. Did they do that? And, and what is your problem with the way he voted? Certainly. So let's look at why he voted. He voted because he says that there was some irregularities to date. There is no evidence, not an iota of evidence, that the will of the voters was circumvented. So he's actually voted against the, one of the most precious rights that we have in our society, in the United States, that's the right to vote. Um, and then if he had thought that there was something wrong, and this comes to the why I'm running against him, if he thought that there's something wrong with that type of legislation, or I'm sorry, that those acts, then what legislation did he propose to change and address the big lie? Because as of date, there is, has no evidence been proven or provided to show that there's any irregularities with the vote to Pennsylvania or Arizona or any other state for that matter in the United States. You know, as it happens, um, Facebook reminded me that five years ago on this very weekend, you were here at the table pre-COVID when we had people with us in, in the studio as a state rep. Um, and so you, as a, a new um, entrant into the congressional race, you, you do have a voting record to stand on in the state, in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. um, but on a national level, uh, you just heard we had a, a Republican candidate in another district right before you. You may or may not have been able to hear. But I had asked him about votes, what, what he might have voted on all the spending bills, on the uh, Infrastructure Act, on the COVID Relief Act, on the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, party line votes were going to pretty much assume you would have voted yes, but then you hear the criticism about inflation and gas prices, clearly what Republicans are running on and an Achilles heel for the Biden administration, frankly, in campaigning right now. How, how do you address that? Well, I got to tell you, we have to first cut through the partisan obstructionism. We have to cut through the mis and disinformation, really deal with the facts. 
look, I'm running because too many people in South Florida in our district, too many Americans across the country are suffering to stand by and allow this partisan divide to continue. I'm a moderate. I go right down the middle. I deal with people and put people's issues first. And to see that our congressman or the congressman that was just on to say that he would example advise the former president not to adhere to the subpoena, the will of the subpoena, that's actually disparaging the system. When we saw the January 6th um, insurrection in the Capitol, we saw the vote to not certify the president's election. That makes us not just weak across the world, the global stage, but it makes us weak at home. It continues to divide. We need to address the issues. Now, to your point, what do we need to do? I would have voted yes. I would have voted not because it's partisan uh, alliance, but it's because it was a good thing to do for the American people. We need to reduce the taxes on the gas, lower the the prices of the gasoline. We saw once the American Rescue Plan was passed and, and, and the Biden administration suspended the um, gas tax, we saw a decrease in taxation, I mean, decrease of pricing. The problem we have is that we just went through a global pandemic, a global pandemic. The last one we had was roughly over 100 years ago. Most countries across the world have experienced an economic downturn. The United States, our current economic problems did not just start with the Biden administration. They can be dated back to years before, even into the prior administration, where we had the greatest increase of the national debt. So we want to re reduce um, the budget deficit, if you will, and we want to add to the budget. Well, you know, like there are many ways of doing that. Let's talk about the science and chips program that is designed, that we just passed as part of the Inflation Reduction Act that Carlos Jimenez voted against. That's designed to bring manufacturing jobs back to the country. That's Those are high-wage jobs. Our, con our current congressman has done very little to nothing, nothing to provide constituent services when it comes to providing advice or fighting for job creation. He's done nothing to very little to be able to provide resolution to our growing need of resilience. We just dodged. We just Robert, dodged. Let me, let me, let me jump in here. We, we, don't, we, we don't really want a monologue. We want a conversation. Uh, let me Absolutely. ask you a, a foreign policy question regarding something that near and dear to people in Florida, near and dear to you, even though I believe that your ancestry is Puerto Rican. But, you know, a lot of Cubans who live here uh, were kind of outraged that the Cuban government wanted help from the United States to recover from Hurricane Ian. Now, Congressman Jimenez was pretty strong when we spoke with him saying, no, we shouldn't give it to them because it's going to wind up in the pockets of the Cuban regime, Diaz-Canel and his group. Uh, what What is your view on that? Man, my heart breaks for anybody that's suffered because of that storm, and much less in a, in a regime like they have in Cuba, a failed regime that has oppressed its people. You know, I'm for humanitarian aid, but we have to open dialogue, and we have to make sure that we call and anything we do for the to help the Cuban island is contingent on that regime um, reducing its draconian draconian uh, uh, suppression of the people. We see in the last week in Cuba what the information is coming out. People are protesting. They're trying to, you know, they don't have power. They don't have water. They have very little food. They have very little medical supplies. You know, that's so close to our hemisphere. And, and it probably is adding, actually, it's not probably, it is adding to those that are seeking to come into our country. I think we have the, one of the largest rates of um, apprehension of those that are coming 
unauthorized into the country from Cuba. We have to make sure that we, you know, thread the needle. We have to create dialogue, and we have to help. Um, one of the growing, most quickest growing humanitarian crises in our hemisphere. Yeah. And Robert, you're touching on a yeah. little bit of yeah. an immigration issue that we yeah. will dis probably discuss mm -hmm. at some further point. But as you know, TV time goes like that. And so we need to say thank you and goodbye and um, uh, carry on with your candidacy. And Robert, we will see you on the other side. Thanks very much. Ask everyone to vote for Robert Asensio, AsensioForCongress.com. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Thank you. All right, next, we're going to look at this proposed property tax hike for Miami-Dade residents for really an extension of an existing tax for the Miami-Dade public schools. School Superintendent Jose Dotris calls it critical, and he's next. Miami-Dade Public Schools is once again asking county taxpayers to continue doing what the state does not, fund better salaries for teachers and school security officers. Miami-Dade voters first approved the small hike in the property tax rate back in 2018. Broward voters recently approved a, approved a similar tax increase for their school system. Miami-Dade School Superintendent Jose Dutras joins us now to get into the details. Mr. Superintendent, Always good to see you. Good morning. Good Thank afternoon. You, Michael. Thank you, So let's start out with um, it, it's already underway. So what voters are asked to do is co to continue with a little bit of an increase as well to add to their taxes. It would be somewhere from one to two to four hundred dollars a year, depending on the wide range of housing people live in. But why is this so critical at a time when apparently all of this federal money is making things so much easier on mm -hmm. the district? Well, Glenna, thank you for that question. The importance of this referendum, the renewal, of course, has nothing to do with the federal dollars. The federal dollars that have been injected or provided to the school district will sunset in 2024. This referendum renewal is really about making sure that we can recruit and retain the best teachers possible for this community and also ensure that we have top-notch police officers and we have safe schools. It's a continuation. There is a slight increase because now the law requires incorporating public charter schools as well. And so that is what the referendum is, is uh, addresses. And we still are keeping the oversight committee that has always been part of the referendum, an oversight committee that ensures that the funds are applied to improving teacher salaries and ensuring the safety and security of all of our schools. Yeah. Uh, Jose, I have to say, I see, as we all do, uh, Governor DeSantis going around the state saying this, uh, the state of uh, government is in better shape financially than it's ever been. We got billions of dollars in surplus. So why is it that the Miami-Dade County Public Schools, Broward Public Schools, have to go to taxpayers to ask for a couple of hundred bucks so the teachers can be paid and you can hire the, the number of cops you need? Right, Michael, thank you. So the differential for a typical homeowner right now would be $6 additional a month as it relates to what they are now um, applied. So it's only $6 more a month for a typical homeowner. The state or the governor has really provided additional dollars for teacher pay, absolutely. 
However, those dollars and that funding has gone predominantly to increase the beginning teacher salary. So there is a recruitment side to bring teachers into the profession. And as you know, there is a national teacher crisis and Florida is experiencing the same thing. However, the, these additional funds from the state do not cover or do, do not provide enough for us to increase and lift the salary of mid-year and our veteran teachers. Not only is Broward doing this, Palm Beach will be going along with us on November 8th. All the large school districts in the, in the, in the state have to resort to this because there is insufficient funding for us to provide the competitive salaries both to teachers and to police officers as well. You know, I want to go back to um, the police officers. I, th I think it's important for people to know that uh, after Parkland, uh, part of the new state law was that every school should have at least one officer or one guardian, doesn't have to be a police officer, a guardian, uh, which is a largely unfunded mandate, not totally, but a largely unfunded mandate, to your point. Um, speaking about charter schools, public school enrollment is down. We, we talked about this because charter school enrollment is up and that, that's the two sides of that balloon. Um, when this tax first went to the voters four years ago, UTD, the teachers union, vehemently opposed it being used for charter school teachers as well. Uh, has that changed this time? Well, legislatively, it has changed. And it has changed and therefore we have to incorporate charter schools which are considered public schools. To your point of the police officer, this has been the 2018 referendum, it comes out of the generosity of this incredible community that believes in education and the safety of our schools. Our school district is a differential in many to many other school districts. Why? We have one police officer in every single one of our schools, and it is the same police officer that is able to know the students, is intimate with the even the design of the school building in case of an emergency, and also knows the community. In other school districts, like you're saying, Glenna, they may have some armed guards, or they may have police officers that rotate because they have to rely on different municipalities. We in Miami-Dade County Public Schools have the same police officer. We train them all. They're all very well equipped. Again, thank you to this referendum in 2018 that allowed us to do this. And we are the largest police yeah. department or police force in this entire nation. Yeah, 468 police officers in the Miami-Dade County police force, school police force. Jose Dotris, always good to speak with you. You got an A-rated district. We'll see what voters think about it on November 8th. Appreciate thank you. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you. And we will be right back. To re-watch today's interviews in case you missed something or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, you can take us with you. Just get your phone, scan this QR code right there on the screen. It'll take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And as always, we thank you so much for being with us this hour. And remember, we are online 24-7. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.